Welcome to the Grimshaw Podcast, Building the City Series, with your host, Tim Williams. Hi, this is uh, Tim Williams. I'm your host for the Grimshaw Cities Podcast Series. Um, my brilliant guest today is Dr. Thrian Marie Thomas. She's Chief Executive of the Green Finance Institute, which is a really rather interesting innovation in the UK around green investment, green infrastructure, and the whole idea of a just transition to a net zero economy. This is a great conversation, helped, I think, by the fact that there's not just one Welsh voice on this today, there's two, as Sri and Mari comes from the same part of the world as I do. Uh, I hope you find it uh, innovative, interesting, useful, and fun. I did. Uh, you're very welcome, Sri and Mari Thomas. Now, I loved saying... Rian Marie Thomas Rian Marie because it's a wonderful name and of course uh, we need to t- explain to people that we are as I jokingly refer to people like myself as persons of Welshness um, and you are indeed a Welsh speaker as I am so sit oiti uh, heddi well diolch yn fawr am y gwahoddiad i fod ar y podcast dwi'n gwenu and grand Arnotin Gwade and Enoing Goer, Free Mary. It's fantastic to hear somebody saying Free and Mary uh, with those dulcet Welsh tones. Well, there so you are. Thank See, you, the thing is, I hope we have, we, we, we do have uh, listeners all over the world. I was going to say all over the place, uh, but all over the world. And I, I, I hope we haven't lost them. I rather hope they've been charmed by our initial ethnic opening. But uh, we're, both very, so we're both very proud Welsh people. We'll, we'll come back to all this. So, um, Dr. Rian Maria, I love I love the name. There is almost nobody I, I know in Wales called Rian Maria, and they're both lovely names. Together, they are fantastic. So let's talk about what you're up to, because you're running something that I think is really important. Part of the reason I wanted to talk to you is that I think, and I'm sure this is what we will talk about, but is that uh, when we discussed what we might talk about, I, I think I said that uh, I'd come to the view late on, probably, because you, you, you've been there for a long time, that, this, that, that the finance investment community has decisively shifted in the direction of, you know, green investment and net zero objectives and all that kind of stuff, and that some people haven't really noticed that they have, but they they have. So we're going to talk about all this. But what does the Green Finance Institute do, Rian Mari? Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to introduce the organisation. We will be four years old in July, um, but if we go back to uh, when we first were established, it was in response to a task force of finance professionals from across the city of London advising UK government that uh, we could see this green finance agenda was starting to accelerate. So, you know, obviously green finance being the application of climate and nature science to financial decision making. And we wanted to make sure that London stayed at the forefront of that mainstreaming. So there was a there was a recommendation put to government, one of 30, back in 2017, uh, that we needed an organisation that would sit between the policymakers and the financial institutions, um, because policy has such and regulation has such an important role to play as we start thinking about how we pivot the whole financial industry so that it becomes the enabler of the transitions that we need to see across every part of our economy. And I'm sure we'll come back to that. So anyway, so that's uh, I became the founding chief exec back in July 2019 with a remit to make sure that we you know, mainstream this whole climate agenda into finance. And I think at the time um, there was an expectation that we'd probably use this platform to look at you know, disclosures and regulations, build on the work of the 
task force on climate related financial disclosure, the TCFD, which I used to sit on when I was in my previous role in the bank. Um, and instead, we decided to go in a slightly different direction, which was to look at what are the blockers for finance to actually make its way into the real economy. So our big flagship at first was looking at buildings, decarbonization of homes, a really tricky one, um, but also decarbonization of road transport. How do we get more financing into nature-based solutions? And we've also looked at, uh, we're increasingly looking at things like sustainable aviation and working not just in the UK, but looking at how do we get more financing into developing economies um, and frontier markets as well. So it's a really practical, very pragmatic group of former financiers who work closely with government, closely with industry, closely with civil society um, to look at there's been enough political signaling. What's actually stopping the money moving? What are the solutions do we need? And then we follow our solutions, Tim. So some of the stuff that we've done is about coming up with policy recommendations or you know what fiscal interventions we need. But an awful lot of the work we do is looking at what sort of financial mechanisms do we need in order to make the money move. So uh, we'll, we'll, we'll unpick. All, all this kind of stuff but I wanted to go back to explain to people who don't know some of this stuff that the so your your governing founding partners as it were put is on the one hand government national government on the other hand what you and I know is a is a kind of a unique sort of council called the city of London corporation which is where the financial center of what well, was the universe but certainly of the UK is in in the center of London so you've got two founding partners is that correct Yes, so we were set up as an independent company, limited by guarantee, um, and the two guarantors that we had at the outset uh, were Her Ma His Majesty's Treasury and um, the City of London Corporation, the head of which is the Lord Mayor of London, which I'm sure many people have heard of. So it's a thousand-year-old organisation that exists to support professional and financial services in London. Um, and so they... They were our seed funders and continue to be, you know, involved and supportive of our efforts. So um, an unusual start for an organization. I remember um, my first day in the job was uh, in the Guild Hall, a fantastic building here in London, yeah. hundreds of years old, in front of a packed audience of about, I think there were 800 people plus the media to announce what our strategy was going to be at the Green Finance Institute. Um, and within a week, I'd had 500 meeting requests. But unfortunately, at the time, the GFI comprised me, my virtual PA, and uh, our head of comms that I brought in, and that was it. So, even... so when you speak to other entrepreneurs and they say, oh, it's really important you get your brand out there, I'm going, mm, yeah, yeah, that's right. kind of not my problem. Very good. <laughs> so you were, you, I, I want to talk about... Yeah. Um, lots of the programs and projects that you're you're into, but you you alluded to this in your introduction, where you said that the this thing this emphasis on systemic transitions was was around retrofitting buildings and then the decarbonisation of road transport. Those two they're two very big sectors where people listening will be involved in both of those. Can you say a bit about the the you know the decarbonisation agenda that you're involved in with those two great sort of 
uh, sort of domains, really. So as you said at the at the top of the podcast, Tim, finance is a critical enabler for every aspect of the decarbonisation agenda. You know, we we can make all the commitments and set all the targets we want, and we know that we need because the science dictates that we have to do this. Um, but without finding a way to finance this, uh, you know, these aren't plans; they're just aspirations. Right. Um, and yeah. and I think. You know, one of the things that you heard we hear said quite a lot is this is all too big for the public purse, and that we need to actually involve the private sector, and and we need to find ways of channeling commercial capital, so money from the capital markets into all of this. And and that's easier said than done because a number of these challenges are, you know, the the returns in the short term are not potentially as comparable as transactions to do with business as usual. There are new unfamiliar technologies. Again, that's, you know, proves to be difficult. There are, there are friction costs to, you know, changing people's business models and starting to invest in some of these challenges. And, but, but there is a huge amount of goodwill in the financial community to do this. I mean, one of the, um, you know, big tent initiatives, if you like, is the GFAN. So the Glasgow Financial yes. Alliance on Net Zero that was set up. Um, by Mark Carney, the former governor of the Bank of England, um, at the Glasgow Conference of Parties, so COP26, uh, the big climate conference uh, that was hosted in the UK a couple of years back. And he got over 130 trillion of assets under management. So, you know, I think it was about 400 different financial organizations at the time to sign up to net zero yeah. targets by 2050. And this is a huge commitment and an absolute paradigm shift. Yeah, yeah. The issue is then, you know, as we've subsequently found, um, and, you know, GFUNDS hits the headlines for both good and bad reasons, unfortunately, at the moment, but implementing that target and that commitment is proving really tricky. And that's where we come in at the more granular level going, okay, let's look at, and we've started our work in the UK. So when we first started looking at um, retrofitting buildings, we've got 29 million homes in the UK. It's the oldest and least energy efficient housing stock in Europe. Wow. Okay. Um, yeah. And, you know, the economists and others have done a fantastic job in figuring out that, you know, you needed something like 200 billion pounds uh, of investment to bring all the housing up to a net zero standard which sounds like a huge amount of money until you actually look at the asset value of homes in the UK, which is something like 8.7 trillion pounds, right? So, you know, there's a huge amount of embedded value within that housing yeah, yeah, stock. Yeah, for sure. But so, so we looked at it at the time and rather than looking at that number, that 200 billion number, like some big monolithic blob, we were like, we're going to have to break this down into the business cases that appeal to the different types of financial investor. And that includes not just, you know, banks and building society and venture capitalists and private equity, et cetera. It also includes philanthropic foundations and it includes government balance sheets. And it includes money from sort of development banks like we have with the UK infrastructure bank that we work closely with here in the UK. Right. It's looking at all those aspects and going, what are the different solutions that you need for the different types of housing, social housing, private rented, able to pay 
mortgaged houses or houses without a mortgage. There are different financial solutions for each of those. So what we did was set about bringing together coalitions of, well, coalition of the willing, so people that wanted to find ways of putting money to work in this space and who were experts. Um, and at one point, our coalition on the energy efficiency of buildings covered something like 75% of the UK mortgage market um, and had over 400 members. So what these guys all did was come up with a series of interventions and ideas and potential solutions, a number of which we've brought to market, and I can talk about that. But that's our model, is looking at each of these sectors and having really candid conversations with the finance providers going, what is stopping you putting more money into this sector? And more importantly, what can we do as a neutral platform with access to government, both central government and local government, um, who understands genuine financial transactions, because we have that background. What can we do to help you get over some of those obstacles? What do you need? So and that's, it's a fantastic and very privileged position to be in. And there's a team of about 50 of us now. So I was, um, I was going to ask you, are you are, are, how many people are you? In, in the... well, well, our core team is, uh, there are about 30 of us that work on these types of projects. And there is another secretariat of a, nearly 20 that work on a nature project called Task Force on Nature Related Financial Disclosure. So, But um, we could come on to that no, too. I, before, but I was going to say, yeah. we, 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 we're hugely indebted to um, a number of the law firms here in London who have um, provided huge amounts of pro bono support. And I think there's probably another 20 lawyers that work with us um, that are, you know, supporting our work. So I think this is uh, part of the reason I'm exploring not just what you do, but how you do it and how you're structured and your founding partners and how you're financed and all that kind of stuff is because it's such an interesting attempt to do what I think you've said is a big picture story in a sense, which is that you've got a lot of goodwill and aspirations. And I want to talk a bit about this from private sector investors to do the right kind of investments, if you like, that actually will mitigate climate impacts in the way that we would wish. But they but you discover in practice that turning that into like, you know, there, there aren't enough products or, or ways to market actually at this point in time so that, that you're helping bridge some gaps between the aspirations and, and delivery, I think, is what I I hear. So that's really important. And you're kind of de-risking things just to give you an analogy from a, a market that I know quite well, which is the social housing market in the UK, particularly uh, because of great regulation by the socialising provider and the government and and because over decades the banks have got used to this product called social housing uh, the, the, the you know the investment committee decisions used to take minutes you know to say we're going to invest in places for people one of the biggest social housing providers in the world and because of all these regulatory structures and they all you know tradition and practice and confidence had been built between private sector and the public sector, what you have on your hands is a very investable market that feels quite safe, and it's so much so that it's cheaper for places for people to borrow in in the in the from the banks than it is for lendlease. You know, one of the big developers because of the de-risking go, going on. I'm, it's a long-winded way of saying that you've sort of. I like the idea that you're actually turning these aspirations into something. You know, a kind of ways to market and to actually do things, um, and that you're an intermediary in a sense. Are you? 
Yeah, I think that's right. We call ourselves a catalyst. Um, and so, as you say, we were initially seed funded by government and the City of London Corporation. They are still on our cap table, but they're a very small percentage of the okay. cap table now because we're primarily um, now financed by big philanthropic foundations. So we still don't, we're still a not-for-profit in that way. And I think that's very important in certain respects because it means we maintain a neutrality and we can, you know, yeah. bring all these competing organizations together and have that sort of pre-competitive conversation and make sure people are bringing their very best ideas to the table. Um, and we end up being a very trusted partner because of that. But I think in the longer term, a better model for an organization such as ours would be to have some kind of revenue generating arm, simply because by definition, these challenges that we're grappling with, they are multi-year, they are multi-stakeholder, they are very complicated. and and the reason they're all those things is because, you know, financial institutions are full of very smart people, which correctly incentivized will find the solutions and find opportunities to put money to work. Your social housing example is a brilliant one. It's like, but someone's got a trailblaze at the beginning and, and create familiarity and, you know, spend painstaking hours getting rid of some of the or, you know, trying to influence yeah. some of the regulatory barriers that might be in the way. And best will in the world, you can't do that when you're sitting on a desk in one of the big banks with your monthly targets and your, you know, in the pressure that's on you to, to meet the incentive structure that's in those organizations. So by taking people out of that organizations and, you know, funding them in a different way through philanthropic funding, it gives us a shot to do that work that's hoping, hopefully going to open up new opportunities for investment and uh, get that money flowing where we need it to go. So I've got a couple of things I want to talk about. Um, I want to talk about decarbonisation of uh, road transport. That was one of your uh, yes. th themes as well, which I think is interesting. Uh, but before we go there, um, if somebody's listening is a bit sceptical about, um, l let's call them the capitalists, let's call them, you know, people who are sort of saying, yeah, come on, Tim, you know, come on, Rian Mari, you know, are you really saying... The private sector investors have, you know, um, swallowed the Kool-Aid or whatever, and they're actually, you know, on board for significant, you know, planetary benefit investments. Or is this just, as they would say in the business, greenwashing, right? So how do we deal, deal with the sceptics for me for a moment? Do you think this, there has been a, I think there has been an amazing shift in boards, you know, and in, in, in investors' boards and you know the ESG requirements are partly be driving it governance has been partly driving it my my own feeling is it is it's quite it's a big shift and it's quite real but how would you answer the skeptics i'd say there are very few credible chief executives of any major financial institution that will make the argument anymore that environmental considerations don't pose a huge potential risk to the future sustainability of you know uh, banks and investors uh, i think at this point that argument's kind of been won um the fact that so many organizations were willing to sign up to net zero commitments albeit a long long-term target um, and are now trying to work through what the interim milestones look like means that we, we've kind of moved past that argument now with, you know, most credible chief executives and boards. This is a board level discussion. The challenge, and this is where the greenwashing concerns do come in, is that there is now a recognition that to meet those targets, 
um, there is going to have to be quite a lot of organizational disruption. Uh, you know, some clients of some of the large financial organizations are, are going to get left behind. They are hugely exposed to transition risk and that transition risk can come in the form of changing legislation, changing regulations, but also just changes in consumer preferences. Um, and so the financiers that get this are best placed to advise, support and help their clients. And the ones that choose not to engage in this for whatever reason are going to find themselves on the wrong side of a transition that is inevitably happening. And one of the reasons that it is inevitably happening, we, you do hear people, you know, I think there were some outflows from ESG funds last quarter. I think that's the first time that's happened in a couple of years. Um, there's some skepticism. There's also a, a bit of pushback with this woke capitalism sort of language coming out of the US. Um, but this isn't, this isn't about doing good. This is about risk reward. This is about recognizing that the science isn't going to go away. That you know, carbon dioxide levels are at the highest they've been since the Pliocene era. It's like 3.6 million years ago. And you know, we're seeing warming in our climate that um, globally 5,000 times faster than has ever been recorded in something like 66 million years. The, the scientific arguments are now unequivocal that our activities as humans are impacting the climate and we're going to see a very turbulent climate going forward. So we need to be thinking about reducing our emissions, but also adapting to what is going to be very unpredictable and different environment going forward. So there's, the, before I got into the finance, I uh, spent a number of years in physics. And one of the things that you learn in physics is that the laws of thermodynamics are inviolable. And in a way that our laws that govern antitrust or that govern any one of our sort of social or economic standards, they they don't really hold a candle to thermodynamics, and that's what's going to win. So I think I, I think I agree with this, and that um, you know the, the rationality and evidence is driving lots of what the the, the boards in, that we're talking about are, are doing. But it, I do think it's, it's quite real. And I will, let's discuss a minor example of how real this can be. You alluded to this earlier on. So Mark Carney's um, alliance of banks set up at COP26, there was some um, choppy waters in the last couple of weeks, something to do with uh, concerns that, um, the, that the group was not being hard enough on investment in coal, I think. And there was the reason I'm raising this is because a couple of very serious, big investors I, I read, like JP Morgan, Express concerns that the there should be no watering down, as it were, of of the environmental commitments uh, in Mark Carney's group. And I'm not saying there are. I'm just saying that it was very interesting that there was a response by one of the big financiers on the planet to say, "Don't touch it." You know, we, we are, you know, we're on a different agenda, and that agenda is, um, you know, something that we're committed to. And I find that very interesting. So I think people who are shouldn't be skeptical about this. I think this is a big shift in capital allocation, if you like. And I just want to shift on to the public sector side of all this. I gave a talk about a year ago, just after COP26, and I showed to government people in Australia the list of things that the, the Mark Carney group were kind of interested 
in investing. And in fact, not just interested in investing in, they, they will only invest in this and they won't invest in some of the other stuff. So like, you know, decarbonizing energy systems, decarbonizing transport, decarbonizing everything in sight, really, uh, was what they wanted yes. to invest in. But and I would, I would try, basically, and I'd like your views on this, is this too strong? But I, I basically said, look, to, to my government friends, you know, some of the stuff that you've been investing in, some of these roads, you know, that are going to worsen people's health outcomes or something, you know, do not imagine that there's going to be as much easy access to finance for some of the stuff you've been doing if it's shown to damage the environment and people's health. What do you think? I think over time that is where we'll get to. And, you know, I think this whole idea that ESG is, you know, environmental social government concerns is woke um, and something to do about do-gooding, I think we really need to reject that whole language. This is an investment issue. It's a long-term value driver. It's about risk mitigation. It's about investment opportunities. Um, and we've got to, you know, we're seeing in some quarters that this discussion is being divorced from facts. Um, and we need to fight back on that using evidence. So over time, as I say, the science is inviolable. And eventually, we're going to have to recognize that finance needs to only be deployed towards things that are environmentally sustainable. We're not there yet, Tim. And part of the reason we're not there yet is because this is not easy. And any huge shift, I think it was Al Gore came out with a fantastic quote many years ago, which was, we are going through I'm paraphrasing, so I'm going to get it wrong, but it was something to the words the effect of we are going through an industrial revolution, but at the speed of the digital revolution. You are listening to the Grimshaw podcast, Building the City series. And that's the truth of what we're doing. And so, yes, there will be bumps in the road and there will be difficulties as we try and implement this stuff. It's about how do you get from ambition to execution? That's always tricky. Um, but it is inevitable, it's happening. And luckily, I think most large financial institutions at their board level are fully engaged on this and are keen to find solutions. I, I find it, I mean, I, I agree with you. The, um, I can see it in the built environment sector that I'm involved in at the moment. I'm working for Grimshaw as the architects and they are, you know, everything they're thinking about is, is mitigating, you know, environmental and social impact you know uh, it's 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 a it's, it's becoming deeply ingrained and it's become you know a way of an, an ordinary way of working in a sense to think about these things it's it's, it's become business as well as ethics and uh, so I, I think I agree with you I, I wanted to ask you I always like asking people about their greatest hits right you know i.e what what your organization is up to that you are most proud of at the moment and we will get there via Something that I think you do, which I think is really interesting. So we've talked a bit about your intermediary role, as it were, and I think it's like in creating, you know, confidence to invest in in, in markets and that transition from aspiration to real stuff, which is which is really good. Uh, but you also do this thing called knowledge exchange. You're champions of the first green finance education charter. So what is that, and what do you what are you doing in the kind of knowledge exchange world? I, I've got four things in front of me. One of them is coalition for the energy efficiency of buildings uh, UK green finance guarantee facility coalition for the decarbonization of road transport and green technical advisory group uh, but basically you do a lot of 
um, in knowledge exchange. So what's that all about? What's, what's your main activities? Oh, on the knowledge exchange piece, I mean, obviously, given the um, genesis of this organisation with its governmental and City of London uh, convening power, um, we've got a big platform to get some of our messages out very broadly and help people who, you know, we've, we've got a huge capacity building exercise ahead of us, Tim. You know, we need, we're going to need everybody who is in the financial sector to be able to think about climate and increasingly nature related risks in their financial decision making. And that's huge. That's absolutely everybody in every sector, um, you know, supporting every type of client. Um, and so we take that very seriously in that we have a platform and an opportunity to provide evidence based support and knowledge uh, for financial professionals. So one of the things that we did right at the outset um, was work with the chartered bodies. So people like the Chartered Banking Institute and others um, to support them as they all included in their professional qualifications uh, some new modules on green finance, uh, which are proving very, very popular. Um, and I think pretty much all those chartered bodies now actually have uh, specific green qualifications that you can do, um, recognizing that these are the skills that you're gonna need as a financier into the future. So that's one of the things, and you mentioned it a bit earlier as well, one of the, I would say one of our top hits uh, are particularly proud of in terms of knowledge exchange is our GFI Hive. Uh, which is becoming one of the go-to sort of knowledge hubs on nature finance, which is a really fast-growing and interesting area. And again, you know, we were going around speaking to financial professionals and saying, you know, in order to solve the climate crisis, we're going to have to invest one in infrastructure, but also in nature-based solutions, uh, things like wetlands and peatlands and forests and you know, mangroves and all sorts of different things. Um, and we've got a fantastic colleague, Helen Avery, who runs the GFI Hive amongst other nature programs. Uh, she was prior to joining the GFI, the uh, sustainability editor for Euromoney. So, you know, oh, right. it, it has had a very, um, you know, glittering journalistic career before joining us. And as a result of that has a huge network worldwide. Um, and so we use that as a, repository for providing podcasts and case studies and uh, you know amplifying genuine transactions where commercial organizations have you know they're making a commercial return on investing in nature because a lot of a lot of the discussion about nature is about nature conser conservation right and again going back to what i said earlier you know what's the business case for that how do we turn that into no, yeah, yeah. you know it's really important mainstream commercial yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's really important because, um, as we know, no money can indeed grow on trees, right? So it's, uh, <laughs> so it's which which is not my joke, unfortunately, but I do think it's a really good idea. I, one of the things that's brilliant, I really think it's it's, it's really good. You've got this investment readiness toolkit yes. that the uh, GF, GFI Hive has done. And if anybody, and I recommend you, you do go to the website because it's got a brilliant graphic, an interactive thing. By the way, I think your your investment readiness toolkit is applicable to almost any uh, business, you know, at all. I think it's, uh, 
it's great, you know, and I, I, I recommend people have a look at that instantly. But so that's one of your greatest hits. The Hive itself is one of your greatest hits. Well, the um, investment readiness plan, just to touch on that just briefly, yeah. you know, as we were going around speaking to um, environmental groups in the UK, we recognised there's a huge amount of intellectual capital and solutions sitting in these environmental NGOs, um, but they haven't historically had much access or ability to into you know in, integrate and talk to investors and so you know that was the idea was one we'd work with and we've now worked with the Westminster government and the um, Scottish government to set up investment readiness funds to help those early stage um, pre-revenue uh, organizations get off the ground and think about how they attract funding from investors and Helen and her team came up with the idea with Right. As we see 150 organizations going through these investment readiness funds, we should monitor and evaluate their journey and help capture the data and help capture, you know, the lessons that they're learning so that we can replicate that so that, you know, a new cohort can come through and that we can scale and replicate. And this obviously isn't just a solution for the UK. It's a solution that is applicable elsewhere. So um, and it's proving it's proving a real success um, getting we're actually bringing out another toolkit watch this space, um, again, in the farming and ag space. Um, but anyway, that will be up on the website soon. Well, one thing, one thing occurs to me <clears throat> while listening to you uh, is, and it's going to sound slightly grandiose coming from me, but I think it's true. The What I think you're doing, it's a bit like, um, I don't know if you've seen that book by Mariana Mazzucato, The Entrepreneurial State, Yes. where she argues, she argues, um, she argues that um, countries like Britain, America have... I've taken a rather slim down view of the role of the state, whilst actually, even in America, you know, the land of free enterprise, the a lot of um, very well-known products in like an iPhone or uh, came out of a research that was originally done by DARPA, the American defense sector. So essentially what, what she is arguing is that uh, we need to understand that the, you know, effective, um, successful market enterprises could still do with lots of support and help and collaboration from the public sector. So public-private collaboration is an important part of the market, you know, in, in any Western society or any modern society. And I think what you're doing is public-private collaboration to reduce risk and to create a new market kind of certainty in, in an area of big change that, that where, where not everything is known at this point in time. Well... Firstly, um, we talk a lot to Mariana. We're a big fan of her work. Um, and uh, what's interesting, so I fully agree with everything that both you say and, and a, a lot of what Mariana says about the importance of public-private collaboration. What's interesting about the GFI is, you know, we're not a government body. We're independent of government. So, but we're a kind of hybrid. So this yeah. is a, it's quite an interesting model to start bringing in expertise from the private sector um, and make ourselves very accessible to the officials and the public servants so that they actually are learning firsthand and really knowledge sharing. So we're actually, we're genuinely acting That's as great. a bridge. Yeah, this is really important. I mean, I, I, I didn't quite characterize you accurately, but I think you are a bridge between the public and private sector. And it's really important. I, I think it's an important big learning that especially in the creation of new new markets and you know new policies, actually there, there's so much to learn that the the private sector shouldn't take all the risk. That the collaboration needs to come 
from everybody kind of putting together to try and work out some of these some of these issues. Um, I was going to go back one step, if you don't mind. I, I'd forgotten to talk about this. One of the great when, when I made my presentation to government in Australia about a year ago around what COP26 might mean for their uh, where they're going to get money from and what what the money is for. What I was trying to say to them, and I, I'll have this conversation with you, that I come from a kind of residential urban development kind of background and. One of the things that's obvious about the housing market and and one of the problems in the Anglosphere housing markets, because they share this problem, is that there's only one source of finance in the market. And that is from banks to to developers who have a developer business model. And the developer business model is unique and basically says they won't build a brick unless they can get 22% return on capital employed. So there are natural limitations in that model. Um, and we need diversity of models, diversity of business models, diversity of investment. And I think that what, what happened after COP26 made me realize, and you can see it beginning to happen, actually, that um, you know, uh, imp- people interested in impact investing, uh, people interested in environmental outcomes, people interested in ESG outcomes are beginning to, to put money into the housing market, but with, with different financial origins to it and different financial needs from it, from the development sector, so that you know people are getting involved in build to rent, right? So, uh, or people are getting involved in, you know, next generation, um, you know, highly environmentally kind of uh, advanced design stuff, which you will not see uh, come through the development community because it comes because the development community, the secret truth of the development community is that it's not that innovative. Actually, it's brilliant at coming second fast. You know, it's uh, it it wants other people to do prototyping and innovation, and then it will copy it and do brilliant stuff. But it doesn't want to take the risk of innovation. So we don't, we haven't seen much design innovation. We haven't seen much um, stuff to do with the environmental upgrading of homes. We haven't seen that partly because the the conventional market that has existed up until yesterday um, is 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 really interested in land and planning, uh, and and so I think that what I'm seeing now is that because of the um, the, 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 the shift towards ESG objectives and the, and the new strength of the investment community around these objectives, that we're beginning to see new, new types of investors come into the housing market. And I think that's a good thing. It's a very long-winded way of saying that I think that the, the investors are, are, are going to change the equation and outcomes in something like housing. And I'm sure that there'll be other sectors where this kind of decarbonisation approach is not just going to produce new... Um, product is going to produce new people providing that product? Oh, 100%. Um, and I think one of the most exciting areas, as well as housing, is if we look at, you know, the growth of electric vehicles. Uh, that's the most obvious example we've got of where, you know, finance is now making its way towards some of the, you know, more innovative new vehicles. I think something like only four years ago, or five years ago now, I guess, you know, one in 70 new cars sold was an electric vehicle. Now it's one in seven. Right. Um, and I think, you know, Toyota's just come out and said they, they've got plans to bring out electric vehicles that have got a range of 600 miles and batteries that can charge in 10 minutes. And, you know, and you look at what that's meant for the technological uh, advances we've made in terms of uh, the composition of car batteries. And, you know, it's, this is really exciting stuff. And, you know, as you've alluded to a number of times in this conversation, it's about finding ways of de-risking um, some of that early stage investment uh, so that we can, you know, pursue some of these new business models and some of these new ventures. 
Um, and that's where, you know, working closely public and private capital, using public capital to guarantee uh, outcomes. Uh, we've got a number of fantastic examples in the UK where we've done this very successfully. For example, in our offshore wind industry, where we right. brought out these things called contracts for difference, which basically provides a sort of guaranteed floor price. Um, and we're obviously looking at those types of mechanisms for all sorts of new industries, like the hydrogen industry, the aviation fuels, a number of areas. Um, and it's really exciting times for financiers. I love that. Looking I, at this and going, I, I, yeah. how can you? How can we bring our expertise to this challenge? I love that. The, the apparently unglamorous term contracts for difference you brought back i mean i trained as a lawyer like 30 years ago and you just brought it back you know it's all its horror terror for me but but it's brilliant but what i like about it and it's i know i, I use the social housing thing as, a, as an as an example right of of how government can create markets through clever regulation right so that the so for example uh, there's an implied guarantee in social housing in the uk that the government will step in if there's any danger of a social housing provider be going bankrupt Right, they step in and they force marriages you know, between um, a vibrant organisation and one that's struggling, and that that reassures the market hugely. So even that implied guarantee gives confidence to the market. So your point about contracts are difference. Uh, people might think I'm getting fixated on something small, but I love the idea that you can actually create markets through clever devices, you know, rather than just lots of new cash all the time or something. You know, there's there's some something that actually creates innovation just by being kind of financially clever. Yeah, there's definitely opportunities for that. I mean, we obviously need the right policies in place. We need the right regulations to be in place. Um, so that's another huge role for the policymakers. But then in order to actually crowd in some of that private capital, there are, you know, there are smart ways of using public, uh, public money and philanthropic money that you know they're not seeking market returns on that money they're, they're looking for a social or, in, or environmental impact um using that money not just as grants but as with guarantees and those guarantees can take lots of different forms as you said um and that's where you need the the expertise of people that have got backgrounds in finance to help structure those solutions so that you know we can start crowding in initially the you know the billions and then ultimately the trillions that we're going to need in order to to solve the climate crisis so look I, i'm going to now uh, uh, give you uh, the moment i've been promising all the interview which is give us three of your greatest hits that you really you like uh, the the organization that you run is doing or you think there's going to be a great future for give us a, give us a couple of your greatest hits Oh, it's really tough. No, um, come on. Dis think... Judgment and discernment and selection are at the heart of <laughs> too leadership. Many to choose from. <laughs> I, do you know what? One of the things that I'm very proud that we contributed to the uh, guidance given to government for the issuance of the first green guilt, so green sovereign bond here in the UK, uh, that was hugely oversubscribed and has uh, you know raised over four billion pounds towards environmental. Uh, outcomes. So we were very pleased of the key role that we played in that and continue to play in that. Uh, I think um, one of the other ones, uh, so more micro level, but has the potential of being hugely impactful is when we first started our coalition on energy efficiency of buildings. Um, I brought in a former colleague of mine from Barclays who together we had launched one of the first green mortgages by a commercial bank, uh, which again was very successful. Um, but there were only three, I think, mortgages like that uh, when we started our work. There's now over 60. 
Uh, we have a thriving green mortgage market in the UK, and we'd like to say we've played a, an important role in catalyzing that amongst our coalition members. So I think I'd put that one as number two. And then I think number three, oh, and I'm doing such a disservice to so much of the good work that many well, you're, of you're a load of fourth. You're a load of fourth. <laughs> I mean, so number three has been the role that we've played in helping set up the task force for nature-related financial disclosure. So the sort of sister initiative to the TCFD, if you like. Uh, that framework is being launched in New York in September during New York Climate Week. Um, and I think is going to elevate the dialogue and do what TCFD did for climate is going to do that. It's going to do that for biodiversity and nature. So really excited about launching that and hosting the secretariat for that for the last two years. Um, and then I guess the last one, I've, I've already spoken about GFI Hive and how that's really starting to move the discussion in the UK on nature and how we've set up a few funds to support that. The final thing I would say, our greatest hit um, in the UK, I think has been to influence the way many people, including the civil servants that we work with, think about the role of finance um, when it comes to the decarbonisation agenda. When we started work at the Green Finance Institute, uh, the Green Finance Strategy came out here in the UK and it talked a lot about greening finance. So how do we look at finance as a sector um, and we help to green it? And the point that we were making was that's really important, but it's equally important that we finance green and that we look at how do we actually channel capital into real economy outcomes, not just look at the sector in and of itself. And I think there's been a shift in thinking. Um, and now that seems like a really obvious way to look at finance. So but we were... I think we were at the forefront of actually pioneering that way of thinking. So a couple of things before we end. What I think has been fascinating and really important conversation, and I really do urge people interested in this to, to contact you and we'll give some details on how to do that because it's really great initiatives that you're, you're doing. Can we talk a bit about, one, the international dimension? Because you, you allude to the fact that although you're working you know, in the British context, you, you're doing programmes and projects which I think have international reach. So I'd like a little bit about that. And then... Believe it or not, I want to talk a bit about Wales, um, our homeland at the end, because it never gets enough airing, in my view. Uh, so international stuff. Have you have you got partners and collaborators internationally? How, how does that dimension work? So we've actually opened offices in uh, continental Europe. So we started in Madrid and in Copenhagen uh, with the support of the Loudest Foundation. So our part of philanthropic partners who are based out in Amsterdam. Uh, and very excited about the opportunities of expanding across further European countries over the next couple of years. Um, but then in looking at frontier markets, emerging markets, one of our teams sits down in Cape Town in South Africa, uh, a really interesting jurisdiction, obviously a country that has uh, got a very, very high reliance on uh, coal and other high carbon sectors. Um, but also a country with a sophisticated banking system and a deepest uh, equity markets in Africa. So a really interesting test bed and a, you know innovation lab for a lot of the stuff that we've been discussing about de-risking and public-private partnerships. So we're actively working there, looking at how guarantees can be used uh, to crowd in private capital, especially domestic private capital uh, in South Africa, which again has applicability in other 
African uh, countries and, and indeed other countries in Asia and South America as well. So, you know, we're only four years old and we've been going at 110 miles an hour since then, but definitely keen to both learn and share learnings, uh, not, you know, the, the work that we're doing in the UK, but with other partners in other countries. So I'm delighted to hear that. And also, I think people listening, and we often have listeners of people in government in places like Australia. We have a clean energy finance corporation in Australia, and I'm quite keen. I'm obsessed in this conversation. I now realise that I'd like to see some innovation in social housing around the greening of existing public housing stock. There must be a programme that we can put together that will people want to finance, and let's, let's launch it on this podcast together. Um, on the... On the last bit, I want to talk a bit about quickly about Wales, but in the context of what you and I, you know, the, in the trade, they would call a just transition uh, towards. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm kind of interested in the net 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 zero, but also net zero poverty idea. You know, i.e., I, I want the transformation we're talking about to lead to better jobs and to m- more economic vitality for the countries and the areas that we we all care about. And I think coming from South Wales, as we both do, you know, which has seen seen better days historically, was it was at the forefront of an industrial revolution, which then left left a rather, um, you know, sort of deprived communities. Really, you know, we we now need to kind of reinvent ourselves. And and I'm just wondering how you think that you know the, your agenda does it. You know, are there issues, projects, relevance to to the Wales that we kind of love? Is, is that is this a relevant agenda for our our homeland and what's going on? What are you doing to save us? What are you doing to revolutionise us? Because I, I sense that you're a revolutionary and that you're, uh, you're changing the world and we, we might as well do a little bit, you know, in our homeland if we can. Oh, no pressure, Tim. Um, <laughs> look, but look, the point you make is a really important one, right? In that, you know, we look at Wales, which obviously was at the forefront of the Industrial Revolution, and then we saw, you know, the closing of the coal plants and the, you know, scaling right back of the steelworks and all the rest of it. This is exactly how you don't do a transition leaving entire communities behind of skilled workers without any plan of how you uh, reskill them, retool them and re-employ them in meaningful jobs. Uh, that's, that's, almost like a, that's almost like a blueprint of how you don't do this. Yeah, and sure. we need to be mindful of this because we, we, we won't succeed in uh, transitioning our economy if we're going to leave vast swathes of communities behind. And, and, I, and the good thing is, as you say, you know, there's a lot of work being done on the just transition including here in London at the LSE and uh, um, Professor Nick Robbins and others, um, really leading the thinking on how we do that. And again, the importance of the social contract. What, what's the role of the private sector in doing that? What's the role of the public sector? All of which needs to be worked through. But the good thing is that work is happening. And specifically in Wales, there is um, an initiative that I'm very proud to be involved with called the Wales Net Zero Challenge Group. Uh, it's Net Zero 2035. So being very ambitious, it's chaired and led by Jane Davidson, a you know, very well-respected uh, former uh, member of the Senev in Wales. Um, and it's really trying to look at exactly the challenges you've raised. What are the opportunities in Wales? You know, we'd still have a you know, big agricultural sector. How are we going to a transition that sector. We obviously have huge opportunities for tidal, offshore. We have a big coastline, huge natural resources. How do we make the most of those and ensure that we have a an economy that is that can take advantage of uh, you know the green revolution? 
Um, so there's a lot of exciting stuff going on. Well, some, you know, going back to the point earlier about really innovative thinking. Um, and the other thing that I think gives me a lot of optimism about this is so much of the, so many of the solutions that we're going to need, as we've alluded to on this call, is that it, it requires collaboration. It requires people genuinely working across silos, working with people that perhaps they haven't done before. And if there's anything that we're known for in Wales, it's about that ability to build communities, ability to, you know, everybody in Wales knows each other. <laughs> so well, um, it's that it's that idea. Yeah, I, I do think we could be a really interesting test bed for a number of these collaborative projects well, that are going to need a real community feel. So um, to end, I think that's a good point to end on the the, the, the one the one Welsh question every Welsh person asks when they meet somebody they've never met from Wales before is where are you from, and I uh, and I I feel that it's a good place to end because everything you've talked about tonight, Priya uh, and Mari, has been about innovation and economic uh, transformation and the role of finance, and I think that you've got some brilliant uh, work going on and some great exemplars for people to follow, but you also connect it, I think, at the end, with a kind of social mission as well, and that these are not contradictory, and that we need to think through what the implications of this, the innovation that we want, will mean for the community, so that nobody is left behind um, as they were. As you point out, how, that's not how to do a transition. The, the stuff we saw in Wales from the 60s through to the 90s was disastrous, and we're, and we're just about kind of turning the corner. But I, I believe that the kind of thinking that you've expressed tonight and the kind of work that your organization is doing and that, that I think, great kind of connection of private and public innovation coming together is the kind of way forward. And I hope people have been as inspired by your your work and your passion, which, is, of course, is suitably Welsh, uh, and will follow your work ever more closely uh, in, in the future. So thank you very much for your, your time today. Thank you, Tim. Diolch and You have been listening to the third series of the Grimshaw podcast, Building the City, with your host, Tim Williams. Join us again for other episodes in the series or listen to the previous series at your favourite podcast provider.